A reading from Genesis. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, as for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The word of the Lord.
reading from 1 Peter. Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts. And the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. The Gospel of the Lord. Acknowledge, we humbly beseech you, a lamb of your own flock, a sheep of your own fold, a sinner of your own redeeming. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Our epistle today from 1 Peter only makes sense if you know the legend about the foundation of the world and the flood that people at the time of the writing knew all too well but has not made it into our Bible. There is a book called One Enoch. Has anyone read it before? This is a book that almost made it into the Bible but did not. If you'd like to read it, you can Google it. You can read it and you can thank God that it didn't. (laughs) However, the book of One Enoch talks about the spirits chained up under the earth that are at the root of both the flood story and our Genesis reading and in Peter. According to one Enoch, there was a rebellion in heaven. There was a leader of this rebellion, a spirit, an angel, a superhuman, a demigod, hard to know. That entity was named Azazel. The Azazel led several other spirits in heaven and rebelling against a boundary that God had set between spiritual beings only and physical beings that were also spiritual. That is, Azazel looked at the sons and uh, looked at the daughters of men and found them very attractive. 
You can read this in Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verses 1, ending in verse 4. The sons of God looked upon the daughters of men and took them as wives and had children with them who became the heroes of old. That is, they made demigods of people, superhuman people. They rebelled against God's boundary so that even the heavens were messed up. The reward in one Enoch is that they were chained under the earth. They were put in jail. They had actively rebelled against God, and this was their punishment, incarceration. Aren't you glad this didn't make it into the Bible? (laughs) It made it into John Milton. Maybe you've read that one. One Peter is very aware of this story. How interesting that one Peter says that between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, Jesus went to the spirits in prison, the same spirits that had transgressed against God, the spirits who should have known better than anyone not to do this. Jesus went to those spirits and said, be released. You can leave. God would like you to. Now that sounds weird, it's mythic, but I think it amounts to something that is extremely difficult for us as people to do in light of the events that happened in Florida. It's almost like Peter is saying, Jesus cares not only for the children and families, but the shooter. My heart is not that big. And that's why we have Lent, to grow our hearts each year. There's a wacky story. It's called The Flood. It's cute because children like it. There's animals, there's boats. The church is built like a boat. I don't know if you notice this. The church is built like an upsound upside-down boat because the church is meant to be the ark of salvation. It's a great story except that all the things in the world die. I don't like that part. (laughs) It seems horrible, quite honestly. We've moved past that today in Genesis 9. The world was full of chaos and things died and God is starting over. Remember that God began with watery chaos and created order out of it. The water overwhelmed the world and God is now recreating. And God says to Noah and to the animals and to the whole earth, never again will I destroy the earth. It's almost like God learned not to do it. And God says this will be the sign when I start using my weapon of destruction, when I use my bow, I will put it down and I will remember and my bow in the sky, a weapon will be a reminder to me and the earth that I will not take revenge unto annihilation ever again. We usually think of Roy G. Biv as this beautiful colored thing. It is God's weapon. It shoots arrows like floods and lightning and God puts it down. That's the promise. I will put it down. Not only are we asked to consider our weapons of mass destruction, Lent asks us to consider, I think, whether or not we are willing to put our weapons down interpersonally. Weapons like 
You are a Democrat, so everything you say is not just wrong, but sinful. Or, oh, you belong to the Tea Party. You're a silly, ignorant savage. Weapons of destruction we are asked to put down because God has done that for us. And then there's Jesus. Now we heard at the beginning of of Epiphany, Jesus getting baptized and the Epiphany he had. The Epiphany that he was beloved by God exactly as he was. That changed him. He did not go back to his old life. He became different. John didn't sprinkle him with a little idea. John submerged him and he came out. He did exactly what happens in Genesis. He was recreated, not just a little. Jesus didn't come out of the River Jordan and give up chocolate. (laughs) He came out of the River Jordan and was transformed. Not a little, but utterly. He came out and heard this voice, you are beloved, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more or less. I'm delighted in you as you are. And then, of course, as with any epiphany, the next thing that happens is it's tested. How strongly will you claim to that moment in which the veil between heaven and earth was raised for you and you saw God peeking at you and smiling? How firmly will you cling to that? Unlike Matthew and Luke, Mark doesn't say anything about turning boulders into bread or jumping off the temple or bowing down to Satan. Just says he was tempted by Satan. Doesn't say how. Forty days seems like a long time. That's how long the flood lasted that consumed the earth. I've got to tell you, if he was only tempted for 40 days, I think I could do that. And I think it's helpful to imagine not the cartoon image that Jesus spent 40 days with the red guy with the horns and the spade tail and the pitchfork on one side and then the little angel on the other. I think it's helpful to consider that the word Satan means accuser. He spent 40 days being accused as to what his sonship and God's delight in him really meant. And I would suggest to you that is where we find ourselves. What does God's delight in us mean for the world and for ourselves? How secure is it? And I can't help but do this because, you know, two months ago when we read the baptism story, I talked to you a little bit about uh, the story of Siddhartha Gautama and how he became the Buddha. And I just want to pick it up again because, you know what, it doesn't really say how Satan tempted Jesus, but it turns out Siddhartha was tempted when he was under the Bodh Gaya before he came, became the Buddha. He was tempted three times, interestingly enough, not by Satan, but by Mara, the demon of illusion, the one who makes the world sleep because we believe and we see the wrong things. And at the end of resisting temptation, Siddhartha wakes up, which is what Buddha means, awake. Consider the temptations of Siddhartha. Mara comes to him under the Bodh Gaya and says, Siddhartha, why don't you just get married and settle down? Having a family is really wonderful. It is. It's fantastic. 
why don't you just do that? It's normal, it's good, it's appropriate. Siddhartha says, you are partially correct. You are part right. I've got to say that having my own child has had this really interesting effect on me in my openness to the world. Before I had her, people would come to me and say, look at my baby, why didn't you hold it? And I would say, why would I ever want to hold your baby? Why didn't you hold that? <laughs> it's yours. Uh, my brother would say, look, this is your niece, why don't you hold her? Nene, she's your daughter, you can hold her. Having my own daughter made me realize how wonderful it is to hold. How wonderful it is to hold. I've told you this before. If I ever have a day in which it is difficult for me to imagine that God is active in the world, I go and I look at my daughter asleep in the bed. <laughs> she has to be asleep for me to see this clearly. <laughs> and there I see God in the bed. There I see God. I think the question that Siddhartha wrestles with, that frankly we all wrestle with, is will the openness to our children make us closed to the world or will it help us be empathetic and compassionate with the world? If I can see God asleep in the bed in my daughter, can I see God asleep in the bed if I catch Gloria asleep? It's only part right that our families are good. They are good if they open us to the rest of the human family. And if they don't, then they're only part good. And this is a struggle that we find ourselves in after the events in Florida, isn't it? Because I will tell you there is only one thing in my life I can lose. And that is my daughter. My son has grown up, my wife, I'm grown up. There's only one thing I can lose. The question is whether or not I will be open to the world or I will hoard what I have. My heart has to grow, people. I'm increasingly afraid of what I have to lose. It is very tempting to focus on what is part right in response to evil. Mara comes back the next day and says, Listen, Siddhartha, you're wise and you're compassionate and empathetic, and you know very well how unjust the tyrants of the world are. You know how unfair their rules and their punishment and their vengeance is. You know that. So why not just defeat those powers? You can. You can be in charge. You can make good and sound government. You can legislate right being in all people. And Siddhartha says, you are partially correct. <laughs> it's a theme. Because the truth is, there are better tyrants than Joseph Stalin and Robert Mugabe. There are better ones. But as we know too well, 
50 years after the Civil Rights Act, hearts have not been changed even though laws have. Transformation is not legislated, but it can be changed. I wonder if Siddhartha realizes that good tyranny is still tyranny. It's efficient, it's expedient, but it does not change hearts. It changes enforcement. So Mara comes back the third day <laughs> and says, look Siddhartha, you grew up really wealthy, you made lots of choices, you got some good ideas, but you are just one guy. Who do you think you are to change the world? And Siddhartha says, you are partially correct. And I wonder if Jesus wasn't faced with that same temptation to aim too low. I wonder if the temptation for Jesus didn't sound a little different. Jesus, you were born in a backwoods little, country, backwoods little village. People made fun of you your whole life because your parents weren't married when you were, when you were conceived. Who do you think you are? And the answer, of course, comes in the baptismal covenant between God and Jesus that says, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased wonder if Jesus isn't tempted for 40 days how he will live out that identity. Will he live it out in part or will he live it out in full? I wonder if we aren't tempted minute by minute how we will live out that identity. Will we live it in part or will we live it more fully this year? I can give up chocolate for 40 days. I can do it. Especially because I know on day 41, I will eat it again. The question is, why do I settle for something that will not transform me or the world? Why do I pick something that will only last 40 days instead of something that will transform me for the rest of my life? I could give up wine for 40 days. I could exercise for 40 days. I could do anything for 40 days, almost. <laughs> the almost is the harder stuff, isn't it? The stuff of opening my heart to the world that has just suffered loss when I am most afraid for my own. I don't know if I can do that for 40 days. I don't know if I can open myself to not imposing my well-researched opinions on the world for 40 days. And I don't know if I can choose instead of settling for some sort of short-term trade, if I can aspire to be transformed and be transformative. 
But I will tell you, I am positive that Jesus was presented with these same temptations, however it occurred, we don't know. And he grew from them. And the evidence is in the last phrase, don't you see? When John was imprisoned, John, the baptizer, Jesus' mentor, short-term teacher, his cousin, was incarcerated by exactly the tyranny that Jesus was offered. Joseph Stalin put him in prison. He cut his head off. This is a good guy, a righteous man who suffers and is killed. Jesus is confronted with something we call cognitive dissonance. God is good and loving and tyrants exist and they punish people who are righteous and kind. And Jesus is tempted once again. Will he give up? Will he go and live in the desert by himself and only allow good people to come live with him? That's the surest way to get away from the evils of the world, to leave it. (laughs) Will he do that? Will he be discouraged when he hears of another school shooting? Will he say, there is no God? Jesus' response is a little different. He says, the kingdom of God has come near. It is here. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus does not give in to paralysis or despair when confronted with cognitive dissidence. Instead, he chooses to trust in God. This is a weird thing to trust in, don't you think? It's going to take me more than 40 days, I'm going to be honest with you. To trust That at the end of our lives, God will reconcile each and every one of us to one another in the world, including the victims and the shooters. Sometimes I'd rather not even worship that God because I'd rather be petty. It's almost like Jesus is saying he trusts utterly that God is extraordinary because God can do the very thing that we cannot reconcile victim and perpetrator after we are dead. And it's almost like Jesus is so convinced that God can and will do it, he refuses to wait. He says, if that is how God will do it in the end, why not start now? We could spend 40 days of Lent and be more disciplined people. We could deprive ourselves, and discipline is of some value. But I think the choice before us is whether we would like to be disciplined or transformed. I think the choice between us, before us now, is if we would like to make a minor change and then get back to partying as we usually did, or if we would like to take trust in God seriously, that God is able to reconcile irreconcilable differences. We're not going to wait until we die. 
This is all not because God needs us to do it. This is not because we're currying favor or earning jewels and a crown that we'll wear temporarily in heaven. This is because God has more joy for the world that we're living and more joy for us. The question is, do we dare live into it more and more each day? And friends, we will not succeed this Lent, not utterly. We will have Lent next year. The question is, Will we step out? Will we step closer to the goal that God has for each and every one of us? Or will we be content to essentially stay where we are? I don't know where 40 days will take me. I don't know. I don't know if I can do it, but I know God begs me to try. I know God begs us to try. Because if God is as big as we say God is, God can handle our failure. God can handle it if we don't make it. What God maybe cannot handle is us not trying because the job seems too big. And so I urge you Christians to live a holy Lent, an extraordinary one, and not an ordinary one. Please join me as we pray our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God.